I mentioned in the first service that when I see the worship team uh, leaving here, I'm reminded of the verse, and they all forsook him and fled. (laughs) I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. If you see someone alongside you that doesn't have a copy of the Scriptures, please share yours with them. And we do have Bibles that we give away, so if you need a Bible, just stop at our Welcome Center today. Before you leave, we'll give you one. The world tells us to pursue our passions. Be all you can be. Uh, You can do whatever you set your mind to do, is what the world tells us. Virtually every commencement speaker at every graduation has that same message, whether it's a Christian uh, institution or a secular one. And, and people have all kinds of passions, don't they? Uh, some people want fame and will sell their soul to get it. Some want power and pour themselves into the politics of power. Uh, some want to achieve goals Some want to build a business. Some want wealth. Uh, Some want to feel good right now by drugs or sex or adventure by adrenaline. Uh, Some people want to be loved and admired. Some have smaller goals like academic success. I just want an A on the next project or test. And some simply want to be able to level up in their next video game adventure. But all of us have passions. The lesson today in Judges chapter 14 is don't live by your passions. Live for Jesus. Don't live by your passions. Live for Jesus. In each of the pursuits that I've mentioned, as well as every other, there is something good and something very, very dark. The good thing is that God has placed a vacuum in every human heart, an emptiness, a longing. You know that longing that you want filled more than anything? It's put there by God. But our story today and over the two weeks to come shows us that when we fill that void with anything other than Jesus, it's just going to kill us. Judges chapter 14, we'll begin by reading the first four verses. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture this morning? Judges 14, verses 1 through 4. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes." His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. 
Please be seated. We're going through this book of Judges where we're discovering what it means when it says toward the end of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Whatever they felt like doing, they did. And living by one's passions can get us into trouble. Um, In future weeks, I hope to flesh this out a little bit more, but we have embraced in 21st century worldwide culture the embracing of individualism, a doctrine that kind of came to the fore in the 19th century by a philosopher named Rousseau. And whether you know it or not, Rousseau has changed how you think. Rousseau has completely flip-flopped the way that the world thinks so that we always think in terms of the individual, in terms of, hey, how's everything going for me as the center of the ground of being? And then this plays out in the tracing of our identity in our sexuality. That that's the determinative factor of knowing how we're being able to express ourselves as individuals is, in particular, finding our identity in our sexuality. And so, Samson is not just a man of his times. Samson is a man of our times. Because if there was ever a person who lived for his individual passion, it was Samson. Samson lived by what looked good. You will see all through the Samson narrative, Samson saw, Samson saw, Samson saw. Look at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistine, living by what he sees. Verse 2, he tells his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah get her for me as my wife. Verse 3, Samson says to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. A little later in verse 7, we see it again. He went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes, living by what looked good. He forgot God's plan that we saw last week that from before he was born, he had been marked out as a man who would deliver Israel, completely forgotten about that, that his father and mother were given specific instructions about how they should discipline their own lives for the sake of their son's life. Not this individualistic feeling of what's good for me, but really sacrificing their lives in order uh, to be able to lift their son to a place of deliverance for the people of Israel. He forgot God's plan. He forgot his parents' wisdom. Notice that his parents are not that excited about Samson marrying the daughter of the Philistine. 
Uh, he says his father and mother say to him, verse 3, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, his parents are not against the Philistines for racial reasons. That's just not the case. They give their reason right here in verse 3. That phrase, from the uncircumcised Philistines. The Philistines are not in a covenant relationship with God as evidenced by their not being circumcised, which was the sign of being in a covenant relationship with God. God's never against interracial marriage. In fact, Moses was in one. God is against followers of his who marry those who do not share that covenant relationship with God, whether it's Christians in the New Testament era or covenant Jews in the Old Testament. You might ask the question, why is that? Why is God against marrying non-Christians? Well, that's a sermon in itself, but I will just share with you briefly. As a real believer, if you're a real believer in Jesus, the most important thing in your life is pleasing your Savior. When your spouse does not share your faith, there will be pressure in your marriage to push Jesus to the fringes of your life. Not, not the center, push him to the fringes. Do you remember the first commandment you will have no other gods before me, marrying an unbeliever will make you compromise your faith. It will push you to make other things than Jesus as more important. And that will end up in the end making you an idol worshiper. Now, this does not mean that if you're already married to an unbeliever that you should divorce them. To the contrary, the Bible specifically states that you should stay married if your spouse wants to be married to you in the hope that they may come to Christ and that your children will have a good family. In a time in Judges when everybody's doing what was right in their own eyes, Samson demands his way because he sees what is right in his own eyes. Let's really understand this. Samson is not being lifted up as some archetypal ideal of a hero in Israel. That's not who Samson is. Instead, Samson is a mirror into the soul of Israel. How Samson is living here, living by what is right in his own eyes, that's exactly how Israel is living by what's right in their own eyes, every person. Do you remember the verse we began our service with, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice? That wasn't happening in Israel, and it didn't happen for Samson. Now, verse 4, there's something deeper here that the author of Judges lets us in on. God uses even our evil desires to accomplish his purposes. 
this does not make evil into good, but it does mean that no evil is out of God's control. There is no point at which God says, in this story or any other, whoa, that took me by surprise. What do I do now? (laughs) That's just not going to happen because God is absolutely sovereign. The fact is that Samson, the man that God is raising up to defeat the Philistines, by this action is actually moving closer and closer to the Philistines, isn't he? He's going to marry one of them. They're going to have kids. They're going to kind of be a Philistine family. Soon, Israel may be completely absorbed by the Philistines who are the enemies of God and of Israel. Michael Wilcock, whom I was privileged to spend a week with once, says this, there's no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. If you feel like you don't have any conflict with the world around you, guess what? It's not because there's no conflict, it's because you've surrendered. God uses this occasion here to draw Samson into conflict with the Philistines. He wasn't going for conflict. He's going for intermarriage and and it all kind of glomming together. But God's going to use this to bring Samson into conflict with the Philistines. The text does not mean that we can do wrong because God will somehow turn it into good. There's heartache all over the Samson texts. You should study that. In particular, some people who fall in love with non-Christians will use all kinds of means to justify it, including the idea that God will turn it to good. It's going to turn out. It's going to be good. They ignore the heartache, but they will not in the future be able to ignore it. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward, came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Living by one's passions creates secret carrying It creates secret caring. Samson puts his parents in a compromising position here. And this is something that uh, Christian parents of young adults will be able to identify with. Here, they're just trying to be the best parents they can be for Samson. Samson has them go down to Timnah to to meet the family and all of this. And, And notice, they come to the vineyards of Timnah, have... 
Have Mr. and Mrs. Manoa become weak over time? Are they in a compromising position? Do you remember last week in chapter 13 where the angel of the Lord had specifically told Mrs. Manoah, don't have wine or any strong drink, don't even eat grapes. Question, what are they doing near a vineyard? Do you see how Samson is putting his parents into increasingly compromising positions? And a strange thing happens. Uh, a lion comes, apparently they get separated because the story of the lion happens when his parents aren't there. And this lion comes toward him running. Um, you have to see a lion in action to be able to understand this. Did you know that a, a lion can leap 66 feet in one leap? Uh, yeah, that is a wow. That's, that's, a, that's a good dis, just... And this lion comes roaring, and Samson grabs the lion and tears it apart, just like you would tear apart a young goat. I don't know how to tear apart a young goat, okay? I wouldn't know what to do there. But Samson just tears the lion apart. He doesn't tell his parents about killing the lion. In verse 7, he continues on and dates the Philistine girl in verse 7. And on his return to marry her in verse 8... He stops to admire his handiwork at killing the lion. Something strange had happened. Rather than the usual actions of decomposition, somehow the lion's body had desiccated, dried up, to the extent that some bees had found a place there. It's not something that commonly happens. And the bees had actually made some honey in the lion's carcass. And Samson scrapes honey out, and eats it, verse 9, and he comes to his parents and he gives them the treat and they eat of it. The gift of the honey is designed to keep his parents off track from confronting him about the girl and from asking questions about the origin of the honey. Why is that important? It's because in Numbers chapter 6 and from last week, we know that Samson was to be a Nazarite from birth. That means he was committed to three things. Don't touch anything dead, don't eat anything unclean, and don't get your hair cut. Those were the three parts of a Nazarite vow. He's already broken two of them here, hasn't he? He's touching the dead carcass of a lion. He's eating the honey from a dead carcass, which was unclean for any Israelite, according to Leviticus 11, not, not just the specialized category of Nazarites. It was unclean for any Israelite. It's uncertain if Mrs. Manoah continued her vows after Samson is born of not doing those things that the angel of the Lord told her not to do, don't eat anything unclean, don't drink wine or strong drink, but it's not impossible, is it, that she would just continue that kind of discipline? And it could well be here that Samson, by giving this to his parents, is not just breaking his vow but he's making his mother break hers too, without her knowledge. Verses 10 through 14. 
His father went down to the woman and prepared, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you if you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out. Then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something sweet, something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. Living by one's passions divides families. It does not bring them together. This wedding party that is joined in here in verse 10, uh, this preparing a feast, the word feast here is the word uh, from which the word drink comes from in Hebrew. And so, it, don't just think food here, think alcohol, lots of it. It's a seven-day drinking feast with, they bring along 30 frat boys from the Philistine fraternity for Samson to join up with, right? I was just down near the campus last night and saw these boys, they looked like they were 12. That's my age speaking, right? carrying these big things of beer, thinking that they were really adults now, you know. This is a Samson. And and there's 30 buddies to the party. And let me just give you a a, a little bit of a picture of this. So here we are at Beit Shemesh looking north towards Zorah and Eshtaol where Samson and his family comes from. And off to the left will be uh, Timnah. Um, The map here, uh, the... This is where we're, we were looking in that photo, looking toward Samson's hometown. And just six miles or so uh, to the west is this Timna where this young lady comes from. And the Philistines are encroaching up into the hill country and they're, they're taking over. But here they are down in this plain and coming up into these lowland hills and starting to take over some Israelite towns. And Samson's kind of wanting to marry this Philistine girl. Um, in Philistia, they grow, they grow grain because it's a plain, it's a flat plain, kind of like Illinois. They grow grain, and from that, they make beer, okay? Up in the hills, they have vines, and from that, they make wine. And so, what you have down here is beer, and what you have up here is wine, Let me show you a few pictures here. Um, There's actually a book I've got that's about wine and beer in ancient times. uh, Does a lot of stuff with having to do with the archaeology of it. What you see here is a beer mug, okay? Uh, Let me show you another one. Uh, First, before that, these are big things that they start out making the beer from, and it drains out the bottom, and then they have these things that they pour it into, and the, the top has strainers in it, little holes, and then you'll, you see there at the spout, there's strainers so that you don't get any of the gunky stuff, you just get the liquid beer, okay? And this is, this is a Philistine beer container from the time of Samson. That's what you're looking at there. <clears throat> and you'll notice something interesting about this. 
the handle, which the handles of most things is opposite the spout, right? When you're pouring something out for somebody to serve, right? You have the spout on the opposite side. Notice the spout is at a 90 degree angle to, uh, the handle's 90 degree angle to the spout. Why? Because this is for like this, okay? And that's how Samson and his frat boys participate in this feast for seven days, okay? Um, There's boasting that comes from being drunk, isn't there? And so, as part of the drunken feast, Samson joins in with a gambling uh, gambit. Hey, I got something for you. I got a riddle. You answer it, I'll give you 30 things of clothes. You don't answer it, you give me 30 items of clothing, right? It's a gambling that comes with a drunkenness. Uh, Samson probably is going to say, technically, I'm still okay here. Why? Because it's not wine, it's not grapes, it's just, do you see how people try to get to see how close to the edge they get to sin without falling off? That's the kind of self-justification that Samson is engaged in here. And so, in verses 12 through 14, we have this riddle, you know, um, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet, and for the first three of the seven days of the feast, they're stumped. And I want you to notice all of the, oh, by the way, a little bit later on, Israel gets into the beer drinking too, and these are beer uh, mugs or carafes from, uh, from Israel a couple of centuries later. <clears throat> um. Look at all the divisions that are caused at this drunken fest. Let me read verses 15 to 19. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I've not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Notice all the divisions that are created. A division between bride from groom. Where are the loyalties here? The bride isn't loyal to the groom. The groom isn't loyal to the bride. She keeps saying, my people, my people, my people. I haven't told even my parents, Samson says. Do you see how... From the get-go, this marriage is a mess because they don't know what it means. For this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It's a division between husband and wife. Notice the division of the groom from his parents. I'm keeping secrets from my parents, he says, as a boast, as though that's a good thing. And the poor habits 
early in their marriage. She weeps the seven days, and he finally tells her why, because she pressed him hard. The habits that are being established early on here, and a foreshadowing, by the way, of Samson's weakness to cave into a woman's constant complaining that we will see in chapter 16. And it divides Samson from his new family because they come to the, the men of the city come and tell him right before the sun goes down, right at the moment, they stick the knife in him, say, hey, 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 we got the answer to the riddle. Na, 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 right? All the divisions created at this drunken fest. Verses 19 and 20, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Unsatisfied passion leaves anger. Can I ask a question about verse 19? What in the world is the Spirit of the Lord doing here? The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson? God is using evil to accomplish his ends. And you notice that the second half of verse 19, Samson goes back to mom and dad. The usual foolishness of both the young adult and his parents in hot anger. Here's a question. Are Manoah and Mrs. Manoah happy to have Samson, the adult child, back at the house? Or do you think that they may feel the ambivalence and the confusion of figuring out how is it that we can follow the Lord and handle this child, this adult child, who seems to be making a mess of his life? And some of you are right there. You're living that right now. Are they wanting Samson back home or are they frozen into inaction not knowing what in the world to do or how best to handle this? Equally angry now, the Philistines give the girl to the best man at the wedding. (laughs) By the way, notice that the girl never had any say except in her complaining that she wants to know the riddle. She was threatened with her life and with her parents' life, with fire by her Philistine, fellow Philistines, and now she's even more taken advantage of. Samson had three commitments as a Nazarite, no wine or strong drink. He blew that with the Philistine beer, but he might have been thinking, technically didn't blow that one. Don't touch anything dead. He blew that one twice, once with the lion, and I don't know how you strip clothes off of 30 dead guys without touching the dead guys. So now there's just one left, isn't there? No cutting of the hair, and we'll see what happens there in coming weeks. I have all kinds of applications to this story that I want to share with you. I've got 10 of them. Don't feel OCD about writing them down. Just listen. Just listen. Living by your passions will get you into trouble. No ifs or maybes about it. 
Chasing after what you see or what feels good or what fills the void in your life that isn't God will bring heartache both to you and to those whom you love. It's what I want is how Samson was living. This is a particular burden for young adults who do not have the experience of knowing just how badly their decisions can go. There's very little that one can do to persuade a person to not live by their passions. If you go away from here thinking, well, now I'm just going to let my kid no have it here after hearing this sermon from Pastor Scott. No, no, no. <laughs> the sad thing is that many won't get it. Even when their life goes upside down in pain, they'll double down on living on their passions. This is what Samson will do. He's going to keep doubling down on his passions until he commits suicide. Living by your passions in the decision specifically of whom you will be, who you will marry will be a disaster. Of course, we all know about not marrying someone who's not a believer. But don't marry someone who, though they profess Christ, do not have a passion for Christ. If their passion is for other things, like even maybe you, don't marry them. It's a formula for great loss. Now, there are two ways out of living by your passions. There's two ways out. There's a natural way and a supernatural way. The natural way is to look to the wisdom of others like your parents or other wise people. That's what Proverbs 12 was saying, wasn't it? When, it? when it says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. That's a, a natural way God has given us to stop living by our passions. The supernatural way is to listen to the advice of God, to gain the wisdom from God. Did you notice in this passage, Samson did not consult the Lord in any of his decisions in this chapter? And he refused to accept any wisdom from his parents. So he is ignoring both the natural and the supernatural means of wisdom. And our memory verse for the month is very helpful here, is it not? Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What secrets are you keeping from others in order to manage your sin? Don't tell me you're not. Every one of us do it. We are secret carriers, seeking to manage our sin by the keeping of secrets. Samson kept it secret from his parents that he had killed the lion, that he'd found the mon uh, honey in its carcass, that he ga and gave them honey from that carcass. Once you are keeping a secret game, you are already defeated as a Christian. When it matters to you what people know and which ones know and how much they know and you're trying to man it, that's a juggling act you can't keep going. 
it's going to collapse. May I say the next thing that I want to share, I say with tears. Parents can be placed in compromising positions when forced to decide between the support of their adult children and the support of what is right. In fact, all of us can be placed in compromising positions when forced to decide between the support of our friends or loved ones and what is right. Do you notice that Mr. and Mrs. Manoa are sort of there for the wedding? But then they're also not there for certain things. They're not there for the drunken beer fest. They're not there for the gambling. They're, they're not there for that. This suggests their ambivalence, their uncertainty. They don't think Samson is doing right by marrying this Timna girl, but they also don't want to be away from their son at this time either. And sadly, this chapter is the end of knowing more about Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. We hear no more of them from the Bible. Perhaps it is Sam Samson's compromises that bring about a full rupture of their relationship. Parents can be heartbroken by the decisions of their young adult children. And most of the time, the primary reason is not that the parents were neglectful parents, but rather that the adult child has decided to run away from God. This does not mean that the parents did everything right. <laughs> to be a parent is to be wrong. <laughs> it's easy to place blame there. Did Manoah and his wife do everything right? No. Was Samson's foolish decisions their fault? No. In fact, we're surprisingly told that behind all of this ugliness is divine purpose. It is important to know what that means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God forced people against their will to do bad in order for God's purpose to be fulfilled. It doesn't mean that bad decisions can somehow magically be transformed into good decisions. But it does mean that somehow and in some way, in God's providence, our beloved Heavenly Father uses everything, even our child's rebellion for the working out of his divine plan. The need for prayer is great. And we must pray for one another. Now there's a huge lesson for spiritual leaders here. Just because you're gifted and successful in ministry does not mean that God's going to give you a pass for your rebellious sins. In fact, the New Testament tells us that it makes you even more culpable before him. Let not many of you become teachers, for they'll incur a stricter judgment, is how the Bible puts it. But in recent years, just in the last couple of years, we have seen these very famous, very well-known Christian leaders. We have seen their secrets revealed. 
the ugliness of their own kingdom building and living for their passions. Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Mark Driscoll, Josh Harris, Ben Curson, all of whom mastered the marketing of their so-called ministries far better than they could manage their own appetites, their own passions. And seemingly every other day there are revelations of pastors who have sexually abused those who are under their care. This is a huge lesson for us. Don't live by your passions. Live for Jesus. Now, it can look like you got away with sin for a time because sin doesn't work the way we think it does. What we think is, walking along, I sin, and then immediately right after, lightning bolt from heaven, kapow, and I'm blown away by it. That's not how sin works typically. There's a delayed pain to sin. Being empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit as Samson was does not mean that his sin was less sinful. Why does God empower and gift people who fail so miserably? Why is it that there were people who were saved under the influence of ministries like Ravi, Bill, James, Mark, Josh, and Ben? In fact, at least in some of those cases, the exposure of their sin was delayed by the silly idea that they're accomplishing so much good, we should push under the rug the bad stuff that we're finding out. Why? Does God use such flawed and even wicked people? It's the question that we must face when considering Samson. Why? It's known only to him, but there is this thought. If we truly understood the holiness of God in all its fullness, by that standard... God would never empower anyone for anything. If God used only holy, righteous people, no one except Jesus would ever be used by God. David Jackman describes how Judges shoots holes through all of this. He says, it is above all, Judges is a book about grace, undeserved mercy, as is the whole Bible. That's not to play down theological accuracy or to pretend it doesn't matter how we behave. We will still suffer for our sins, but we can rejoice that God is also in the business of using our failures as the foundations for his success. Let's never imagine that we have God taped or we know how he'll work or when. As soon as we start to say God will not or cannot, we get off on the wrong foot. Last thing I want to say, what are you using to fill your void? You know, we can smugly tell ourselves that the Samson story is irrelevant to us because we don't share his passion for sexual lust or the party lifestyle, but that's for somebody else. I hope somebody else is listening today, but no matter what it is that we're using to fill the void, 
fame or power or accomplishment or money or building something to feeling good, to wanting to be loved and admired, to being able to get an A on that test or to level up on the next level of the video game, no matter what it is, it's wrong. Pascal, the French philosopher and physicist, said this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can be filled only by the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. We're always inventing something to fill the void. Don't live for your passions. Live for Jesus. Father in heaven, forgive us for our idols. May we not look smugly on Samson, but instead say, I am Samson. And let us walk with Jesus. Lord, for that person here who's never put their faith and hope in Christ, I would pray that they would put aside their things that they are using to fill the emptiness in their soul. They will never satisfy. And that they will find in Christ Jesus, the one who can fill that void completely. They would say, Lord Jesus, I turn away from those things that I've tried to use to fill that emptiness in my life. I even recognize that they have given me some pleasure. and I'm just going to throw them away now, Lord, compared to the, the joy of knowing you through your Son, Jesus Christ. I trust Jesus and what he did at the cross to forgive me of my sin. I believe he died, was buried, he rose again, and that means that I will be able to enjoy him in eternal life right now all the way into eternity forever. And Lord, I offer a special prayer for the parents of adult children who are chasing their passions. Would you grant them divine wisdom and blessing and discernment for how to walk day by day? Please, Lord, help us know how we can love one another in the midst of this trying time where people live for themselves. May we exalt Christ in all things and at all times. In the name of our Master and King, Jesus, we pray. Amen.